Welcome to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance, where top-level COOs share the insights, tactics, and strategies that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Ben Smith is the COO at Sugarfina, a true omni-channel luxury candy boutique. Previously, Ben has held positions as COO for Fame and Partners and General Manager in Operations for Williams-Sonoma. Ben is a supply chain and logistics and operations expert who is incredibly passionate about bringing technology and operations together. He's a people-focused and strongly believes that supply chain is a characteristic of your product that drives brand loyalty and profit margins. He's originally from Australia, but he's also lived and worked in the UK and China before moving to the US. And um, I'm actually really interested in learning a little bit about this. I have a couple of CEOs that I coach that are struggling with some of the supply chain areas. So Ben, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thanks for having me. Really, really glad to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to um, to learning a little bit. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey as to um, kind of where you got some of the skill sets along the way and, and how that brought you to where you are today with Sugarfina? I'm not sure if many people who are in supply chain and operations really sought out after to get into that. I think, you know, a lot of us fell into it through, you know, a number of different ways. My journey started by me working on a factory floor and being lucky enough to say the right thing at the right time and being curious enough about how a business operated. I've always had a genuine interest in how does something get from A to B? What are all the moving pieces in this? And being lucky enough to say the right thing at the, at the right time, you know, enabled me to sort of start to move throughout different parts of an organization, but always tend to sort of be drawn towards whether it's transportation or warehousing and fulfillment logistics. Mm. I think a pivotal point in, in my career was spending a bunch of years at a, at a third-party logistics company, working very close with the founder and managing director of that company. And okay, the reason I found that so pivotal was this exposure to so many different businesses. So every client did something a little bit different. Sure. You know, they're e-commerce driven and retail driven. We had at one point, I think, 175 different clients, all similar in what they needed to achieve, but all slightly different in the way they approach the business, whether it's customer experience or whatever that is. So you know, I, I think that's been pivotal to me in terms of having this really broad view of, of looking at an operation. If it's not working, what are the many experiences that we can draw on to try something different and improve. That's a really interesting insight into all those companies too. I actually coach a CEO who's in the logistics space called Blue Blue Grace Logistics out of Tampa, Florida. Yeah, um, I know of them, yeah. Yeah, they've gone from like 60 employees up to about 700 now, just raised 250 million from Warburg Pincus. Yeah. And so I think they're probably in the top three to five in their space now in North America. But it's interesting because they do have a very unique insight into these different brands. Were you right. on the logistics side with the 3PL or were you in, in another role with them? I was over everything, essentially. So I did a lot of the actual customer facing, a lot of business development. I knew the ins and outs of the company very well. I didn't start doing business development until my later years. And that really just came about because you know I knew the business so well operationally. We always approached that business development process and phase very in a consultative type manner. So looking at what the client's needs were and understanding their challenges operationally and be able to speak to that sure. from a real sort of supply chain perspective and understanding those details was very helpful for them. That's so different from just a pure product sale, isn't it? Right. 
yeah and and i think that was what made us so successful as well was just taking that consultative approach like what are your challenges today and how can we solve them Mm. um, by using you know shared resource and you know better systems and systems that are built to handle some of the challenges they're having but I was also over, you know, the general operation itself and, you know, just trying to get orders out the door every single day and communicate with customers and manage resources and so on and so forth. What was your background in in education? Just a straight business, business administration when I first left school. And I I went back and did that later, actually. When I first left school, I just went straight into the workforce and didn't go and do tertiary education until, you know, several years later. And then I thought, well, you know, I'm learning these skills. I, I should go back and learn some basics from you know, from a degree standpoint. So I just went back and did something that gave me a broad spectrum. At that point, you know, I was just getting into logistics and supply chain, but didn't really know if that was going to, was going to be where I wanted to go long term. So I, I stuck with something broad. So you went right, for, right from high school into the workforce then? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Awesome. Most Aussies go, uh, they call it going walkabout. Did you go and backpack around the world a bit? I most certainly did. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I traveled extensively through, uh, you know, North and South America and, you know, spent, and that's what ended up taking me to the UK. I went and lived and worked in the UK for three years. And mm. I don't know what it is about Aussies and how, you know, need to do that, but it was an amazing experience, really eye opening. And I think you learn a lot about, you know, culture doing it as well. I'd highly recommend anyone to take some time and get out there and travel and see the world and places that you might not normally go. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, I did a uh, a year traveling around the world when I was 25 and did my whole tour through Australia, even got out as far as Perth and, yeah, and great. a couple of Aussies up in, in Indonesia and traveled with them for about five months. So yeah, great people. And you're right, you do learn a lot about a global culture, but you also just see businesses from a completely different perspective too. Now, how did you end up at Sugarfina? I was looking for a change at the time. I'd moved to the US with an Australian-based company. I was with Williams-Sonoma in Australia and it was, it was a, a great place to be. I was leading the operations and for the expansion into Australia for Williams Sonoma, and that essentially went from nothing—a startup in the country—to 100 million in revenue in three years. So it was wow. it was pretty chaotic, right? And it was a really interesting dynamic as well, because you've got this five billion dollar business that's also a startup. It was unlike a dynamic I'd ever experienced before. I'd been in startups and I'd been in sort of medium to large sized businesses, but never this strange hybrid. But in any case, it was it was a great role. I was traveling a lot to the US. You know, I always wanted an opportunity to come and live and work in the US as well. And that was probably going to be more difficult and challenging through Williams Sonoma because you know how do you know, they got twenty thousand employees, most of them in the US. How do they justify moving someone from Australia over to the US when they've got such such a great talent pool locally? Oh, for sure. I was actually a, a, approached by another company who, an Australian company, more of a startup, who were looking for a COO who were relocating to the US and. You know, I thought, well, this is a great opportunity for me, one, to, to take that next step up in my career and into the COO space and also get to relocate to the US. A great way to do it. That doesn't happen very often. It was actually really challenging because the day I got offered that role, I actually also got a promotion at Williams-Sonoma. So it was a really difficult decision for me to make is to turn the promotion down and actually move to this other company. The reality being, though, is what I sacrificed was a couple of things. Is One, I sacrificed a, a really great culture. And I sacrificed a connection to the product. And it hadn't really occurred to me how important that is for you to connect to what you're doing on a deep level beyond just what you do day to day in managing a team or building a process, but having some kind of connection to truly, really believe in what, you, what you're working it does, with. It does change everything for sure. It, it does. And you know, I, I left Williams-Sonoma where I could really get behind the product and I, yeah. I moved to a, 
a women's fashion business. Pretty difficult for me to connect with on a product level, but a fascinating supply chain in that we were manufacturing everything on demand. It was fully customizable. Every piece was made individually for the consumer and delivered directly to them through China. I was fascinated by the what the, the challenges in the supply chain were going to be, but I sacrificed a bunch of other things. So when that environment started to get a little bit toxic for me, I started to, to look elsewhere. I found the Sugarfin opportunity and 17 interviews later, I landed the job. Really? Was it that that um, kind of rigorous to get in the door with them? It was, but it it was rigorous in a way, but it, it was- probably made sense. Uh, it, it made so much sense. And you know, I've learned that's one of the things that we've done really well in terms of maintaining our culture as we've grown. You know, it's very, very difficult to maintain such a great sort of more small company culture when you're growing at such a rapid pace, right? You start to, you need to bring in a lot of talent. You start to bring in different personalities and it gets very challenging to, to maintain that sort of culture. But by meeting a lot of people, not only do the people that are interviewing you get a real sense for who you are cross-functionally, but you also get a sense of who are the people who are leading this organization today? You know, Am I going to fit in with this culture? It's not just, am I going to be able to work well with my boss and maybe another person, but actually getting a really good sense of what are the challenges and how are they approaching them and who are the people I'm going to work with every day? It was actually a really great process. At the time, I was like, wow, I'm meeting a lot of people and coming back and now I'm really thankful for it, actually. That's really cool. Yeah, I want to get into a little bit of the interview process with you and find out um, kind of what you saw in them and what they saw in you. But I'd also love to know, just give our, our listener, I guess, a bit of a rundown as to what Sugarfina is and what the business does day to day so we can start to attach to that as well. Yeah, sure. So as you mentioned in, in, the, in the intro, Sugarfina are you know, a luxury candy boutique, essentially candy for grownups. We have, it's, it's a multi-channel business and we have over 50 retail stores in North America. So most of them in the US, a few in Canada. We also recently just opened our first Hong Kong store through a franchise partner. We do a lot of collaborations. So you might have seen we have a Casamigos collaboration where we've got some tequila infused cordials and we've got, a, you know, we did a Corona collaboration, Tito's vodka. So we do a lot of, you know, these sort of great products for gifting really working on like our, our product is presented phenomenally our, our our team just does such a good job of making our products beautiful uh, we just launched a collaboration with disney as well to celebrate uh, mickey's 90th birthday so a lot of sort of high-end very giftable candy products is essential cool. yeah are you doing anything on amazon are you doing anything um you know in the online space what well, i guess how would your percentages flow versus retail yeah so retail is certainly the lion's share of our of our total revenue we do have e-commerce. It's a smaller percentage, but we do all of that ourselves. We do some dropship programs through you know, Nordstrom and a few of the other wholesalers and, and large department stores. And we also have our product in select department stores as well as select grocery retailers as well, mm. which is more of a wholesale type arrangement. We've kept the e-commerce fulfillment piece in-house okay. for a particular reason, you know, and that's because we, we control the customer experience. I think you mentioned, you mentioned gifting a couple of times. Is that core to your strategy? It certainly is. I mean, you know, I think, you know, we're very heavily promoting that Sugarfina makes a great gift. It's a great gift to give. It's a great gift to receive, right? So I think that that's what really drives a lot of our volume. And actually, we've had many people come and buy from us and say, I received Sugarfina as a gift and I'm coming in now to either buy it again for myself or to buy it for someone else as a gift. I love it. I have a good friend of mine, um, a guy named John Rulin, wrote a book called Giftology. And I'll, right. I'll introduce John to your brand. He yeah. has all the major sports teams or clients, lots of big businesses. And 
he tries to get people to understand that that your gifting to a either a prospect or to an employee or to a client should really be equal to what you would typically spend on a nice dinner out with them. Um, right. you know, typically, well, we won't even bat an eye on spending two hundred fifty bucks or three hundred bucks or five hundred bucks on a nice dinner with a client. You right. know, a nice bottle of wine and the tax and tip and good steaks and you know you might be five hundred bucks on a nice dinner. But then we cheap out and buy a fifty dollar gift. It's like you know, we send them a gift with our logo on it. It's like, what do you yeah. think? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the, the the corporate side of our business, another one of our channels, which is our custom corporate business, is growing phenomenally. You know, one of our one of our fastest growing channels. It's about a lot of the corporate businesses creating custom gifts through us and distributing it to either their teams or their customers. And you know, we get a lot of repeat business through that. Like, I had a you know a vendor who sent me this gift as an appreciation, and now we want to do it for our staff or for our for our vendors. And it seems to you know have this sort of you know, the gift that keeps on giving in terms of it. as soon as we give it, someone else wants to come back and, and, and purchase it for their you know, people. That work with. Yeah, it's really good. I do like what you said earlier about it's kind of nice to get into a brand where you can stand behind the product and you just, you're, you like it. I mean, I think, I don't know what the percentage might be, but maybe 2% of people might be able to do that or 5% at best because so many companies just are out there, you know, building a road or right. building a bridge or making glass or making, yeah, women's clothing if you're a guy. Um, it's kind of cool to be able to be in. I was in the auto body space forever and house painting. Yeah. I just didn't love it. I, you know, I, I like the business of business, but I didn't love the product itself. Right. I think it's you know for me, it's it's actually something that I'd learned later in my career that is, you know, somewhat of a factor to how much I enjoy what I'm doing. Like I love logistics and supply chain. I'm kind of a nerd for that stuff. Sure. But yeah. um, and you know, a lot of the processes and functions are the same no matter what the product is but if you can get behind the product and truly believe in it it just makes it that little bit easier to do what you're going to do every day talk to me about then what you saw in the company because i think you said you saw some of the culture side of the company and you, yeah. you saw that in the interview process what was it that stuck with you uh, that i guess attracted you to them as a brand in that early stage so i mean a few things i mean i, I think you know one I, I you know to go back on the point again i felt it was an exciting brand and the brand was positioned that felt like I wanted to be a part of it, right? I liked what they were doing. I liked the fact that they were growing rapidly and they were yeah. well received in generally in the public. You know, in terms of like a culture and what I saw when I was interviewing uh, with everyone here was, you know, certainly even from 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 the founders and meeting with them is that they they trust people, right? So they weren't the sort of people that were going to that were looking to hire someone to tell them what the, what to do. And they were looking to hire someone to tell them what they needed to do and they would stand behind you wholeheartedly and really trust that what you were telling them was was right and that's a big thing for me you know having someone that comes in that or having you know allowing someone to come into the business and really trusting them to make the right decisions for the business was a big thing for me how did you get on the same page with their vision and how many how many founders were there uh two founders okay you know i think their their vision has has always been very focused around customer experience and for me that's sort of one of my kind of core values as well. And, you know, even when I'm looking at a supply chain or logistics, I always want to start from the customer and work backwards rather than the other way around. And that's first and foremost, what do we want our customer experience to be, right? From that, we work backwards on how do we achieve that right. you know, through the supply chain. And I think for, we, were, we were aligned on that straight away. Their vision was very much, we want to create not only beautiful products, but that experience has yep. to equal the quality of the product all the way through the process. Yeah. And then that determines your pricing as well, doesn't it? That determines right. everything else about the business, sure. Yeah. 
So, um, okay, so you, you kind of got engaged. Now, do they have a formal vision that you've signed off on or how do you and they interact, I guess, on a daily, weekly basis to stay on the same page? Nothing so super formal in terms of overall, you know, we have we have company goals in terms of revenue targets and what we want to do from a retail expansion, international expansion, and where we want to grow our uh, e-commerce to and, you know, get different channels of business we want to get into. Certainly from my perspective, I focus on building uh, a supply chain strategy, one, you know, sort of short-term goals and then longer-term goals. And in a uh, medium-sized and, and sort of rapidly scaling business, building a five-year plan doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Because sure. yeah. what the business looks like today and in five years, two totally different things. So yeah. trying to achieve it and put together a strategy is going to have people running all over the place, not being able to achieve it because the business needs change so much. So I focus on a couple of more short-term strategies and then a few more medium-term, I'm talking sort of maybe 12 to two years out maximum. So you know, I'm looking at where our business is growing and the strategies to implement to take us, you know, and certainly get ahead of the curve in terms of scale and presenting that to, to the founders and making sure that we get buy-in from them. And then, you know, I go off and execute that with my team. What did you pull with you from Williams-Sonoma that you still use today? Are there any systems or practices that you brought with you from there? Certainly some of the, there, there are actually, I mean, there, there's been some strategies that I pulled from, from the Williams-Sonoma days that we're implementing now with, uh, at Sugarfina. And a lot of that's around transload centers and consolidation centers much closer to the vendors. If we look at our distribution network today, we have a West Coast operation that does you know, production and production for us is taking the raw candy and packaging it into our you know, finished goods forms. And we have that on the West Coast and the East Coast and we have distribution centers there. And a lot of our product is sourced you know, all over the globe, a lot from Europe, um, a lot of packaging from Asia. When we look at the natural inbound flow, you know, a lot of that's coming either to the East Coast or to the West Coast. And then we have to have, you know, domestic transportation to get that product to our distribution centers on East Coast, on, on each coast. So trying to really sh- uh, shift a lot of the movement or separation of that goods much further up the supply chain, you know, closer to our um, origin points, that uh, means that we're minimizing a lot of the touches and a lot of the costs in moving it domestically. Now, that was something that I was lucky enough to, to work a little bit on. Interesting. At Williams-Sonoma, we were setting up some transload centers in Asia to help break out a lot of the product and get it to the coast it needed to be at wow. without having to touch it again. Wow. Um, yeah, so that's, that's some things that we're working on now, sort of you know, more medium-term strategy to set one of these up in Asia and one in Europe to really get the product where we need it when we need it there. How many employees do you have now? About 400 permanent. Um, okay. And then you know we flex up with temp staff and that can be that can add an, an extra couple of hundred. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, you, so you hit, you're hitting a point now where you have to hire for deep expertise as well. Right. Exactly. How do you hire for that deep expertise and also keep the culture as you're, you know, you've kind of well past the 100, 200 mark where culture is now starting to get fairly rooted. How do you hire for that culture and how do you maintain it as you continue to scale? Going back to the same the interview experience that I had, I think, you know, all of our, you know, people from sort of director, senior director and above have multiple interviews with cross-functionally across the business. And we also have a bit of a feedback process where we don't influence anyone else's decision. You know, people might get around a room after meeting a candidate and maybe the CEO says, well, I didn't like this or I really like that. And that might influence what other people say. Yeah. You know, so we have a sort of private way of being able to give our feedback on the candidate to not so it so it doesn't influence what anyone else thinks. Interesting. And that's been working really well for us. That's something that we sort of started doing a few months ago on a few of our key hires. 
But certainly we look for people that have a certain demeanor that's very much like us, that is very much a collaborator. Like people we, we bring into the business uh, really have to be talking and, and be able to demonstrate areas where they've collaborated and really worked with teams cross-functionally to get the job done. Sure. That's important for us. And that's where we focus in terms of the more senior hires. Are you hiring all of your people in your main offices, in your main distribution centers, or are you hiring any remote people as well? Pretty well, everyone is um, either in our HQ or our DCs. Yeah. Yeah. We have some offshore resources on our technology front and some remote resources on, our, on the technology side, but pretty well everyone is, is based at one of our facilities. So a few minutes ago, you mentioned um, some of your packaging coming from China. Any, uh, any hiccups now in what's been happening in the recent politics in the US vis-a-vis China? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, um, it's a it's something that we need to strategize on, and you know, I think it's it's very likely that a lot of this will start to move out of China, and I think a lot of people are, are doing the same thing, right? You know, I think you you know this happened many years ago in the apparel industry as well, where you know yeah. China with, with a rapidly growing middle class, you know, China's not as cheap as it used to be. You know, everyone no, went to China because yeah. they had a lot of great expertise and they do a lot of things very very well, and they built that expertise up by having so much demand due to the pricing. As that pricing started to increase, people started to, you know, didn't want to erode margins. So they started to look to other areas in Southeast Asia that, you know, have a similar workforce and are able to produce quality goods. So for us, it's really about how do we diversify our packaging, procurement and sourcing outside of it just being in, in China or anywhere instead of, you know, Southeast Asia. And is the retail landscape, is that, you know, clearly the retail landscape in the United States is changing, but I don't envision that your stores would be in the big malls where would you, where would your stores be yeah we actually have a combination uh we have a combination of like you know like a lot of the lifestyle malls the more outdoor type spaces which yeah. seem to be a lot more popular these days sure. yeah. retail today you have to do more than just have a storefront and expect right. people to walk in right okay like, you've got to do something different you can't it's just you know the traditional way of retailing where just open a door and people will come doesn't work anymore you know, for us, it's making sure that our experience uh, on a retail perspective or what you get online or what you get anywhere is the same regardless where you go, what store you walk into, what you buy online, you should have that same experience. Yeah. For us, is about we have a lot of events in our store which get people in the door and you know, we'll continue to keep doing that because that's what helps make our retail side of the business very successful. Dan, you mentioned you have a couple locations in Canada. Have you got one in Vancouver? We do, yeah. We've got a couple in Vancouver, yep. Awesome. I'm going to go check them out tonight. Um, I'm I'm feeling a craving. I need something after my run to go with my red wine tonight. So I'll go and see if I can pick up some chocolate somewhere. So walk me through then your kind of your beliefs around culture. I think one of the the big disservices that we get from the mass media is they talk about, you know, the the free massages and the free lunch and the bicycles for everybody. And I'm like, that's not what culture is. So what does culture mean to you or where does it come from? What what systems and processes and thought do you put behind creating a great company culture? I think it's potentially great to get someone to join your business, but quickly you see that that you know, has the potential of just being a mask for maybe a bad culture and not doesn't necessarily mean it is, but you can have all the free stuff in the world. If you've got a toxic culture, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, you know, for us, it's, and for me personally, a lot of trends, transparency between me and my teams and cross-functionally. You know, I, I have a few different functional teams report to me that might not normally communicate all that much together. On top of the sort of one-on-ones that I have with each of my managers of each area, you know, I also bring my entire cross-functional team together at least twice a month uh, to talk about what we're working on 
in each department. And that way, someone in technology knows what's happening in production and someone in fulfillment knows what's happening in project management, or something like that. Can you walk us through that one-on-one? Sorry, walk us through the, the twice a month meeting with all of your, your direct reports. And then also, yep. um, secondly, I'll get you to walk us through what a one-on-one meeting looks like for you as well. Yeah, sure. There's a couple of things that we that we bring to the twice a month meeting with, you know, the all my my whole ops department. For any of them who have, you know, a, a, a metrics driven function, so that might be, you know, our fulfillment area, our production area, our transportation area. Yeah. We start by by looking through those KPIs and and those metrics um, as a group and just and talking about them. What's working? What's not working? You know, are we increasing volume? Are we de- decreasing volume? What are our costs looking like? And we collaborate on that a little bit. We spend the first, this meeting is an hour and a half. We spend probably the first half an hour or so just looking at the metrics and making sure that we're on track. Great. We then go around and each each uh, functional head talks about any of the initiatives that they have or was part of the broader strategy. Where are they at with those? And what other new initiatives do they have to bring to the table? Yeah. When we go around the room and talk about those, and it's quite often that we'll be talking about something in production, and someone from technology has you know some kind of great solve to help a metric, or getting together cross functionally as a lot of great things have come out of that that you might not normally have if you're only meeting in that in that more sure. functional area one on one. So the general idea is it's fairly relaxed in that other than going through the metrics and and we're talking through them, the rest of it's really about. Let's talk about what's happening in your area. You know, what, what are they roadblocks on? What are you concerned about? And what else are you sort of looking to bring as an initiative to the area? Who are your CEOs? What, are, what were their names? Are the co-founders? Uh, Josh Resnick. Okay. And uh, Rosie O'Neill. Interesting. All right. Um, it's funny. You just described like those were exact. That was exactly the format for my weekly meetings with my leadership team when we built out 1-800-GOT-JUNK. The only twist was we did our updates first, then we did the metrics second, and then we kind of helped unstick people third. Yep. But the exact same format. And we were 90 minutes, same thing. It's so powerful. Yeah, it's great. Really, really great. Now tell me about the one-on-one meetings. How do those work? So so one-on-ones every week. Okay. I expect that my functional head is giving me the update on what's happening in their area. You know, I always end the meeting with asking them what I can do to support and what resources they need to get the job done. You know, I think for me, it's much more in my interest to really get out of a lot of my people's way and make sure that they've got the resources they need to get the job done. That's the biggest roadblock in you know delivering or executing on a strategy or an initiative is I can't get it done because something's blocking me or someone is blocking me. And my job is to remove those barriers so my team can get on and do what they need to do. And I think it's really about that. Where are they up to in there? In their, it's, it's, it's a bit more of a private setting of the, of the broader group. But sure. We dive a little deeper into the details of that functional area during the one-on-ones. That's where they're feeling supported by you and they're getting some mentoring by you and you're, you're helping remove obstacles for them, but you're not telling them what to do. You're just, right. you're kind of holding them up versus telling them. Yeah. I always try and hire people that know more in that area than, than I do. Right. And that's something that's, that's taken me a little bit of time to learn or get comfortable with. I think in my early management years, I didn't want to hire someone that I thought was better than me or knew more than me. And that, that was, that was a really, scary. Fake, right? It is scary, right? You yeah. you think your job's at risk, but yeah, you learn very quickly how important it is to have people who can do that job far better than you can, and that's why you have them, and that's why you want them on your team. Yeah, and the, the reality is, if you keep doing that, it just propels you. It propels the company. You're not going anywhere. Yeah, there's been a weird trend um, over the last number of years to kind of flatten the organizations, flatten hierarchies, get rid of titles. Any thoughts around that at all? 
You know, I think it works differently in different organizations. I think for a very labor intensive operation like we have, where we have, you know, hundreds of people running around, a more of a hierarchical organization structure works a little better for us. I, I've sort of worked in both. I remember my 3PL days, it was essentially a very flat structure. And, and it, I think what happened in that area is we, you end up with people who are doing their very best to manage functions that they might not be that well experienced in. Hmm. You know, because they're sort of trying to do more than necessarily hiring someone who might look after that area directly and has a lot of experience in that sure. area. Yeah. yeah. So I think for us, we don't have crazy amount of layers. I think we've got a nice even mix. We have some cross-functional roles. It works well. Uh, I think I prefer a bit more of a structured environment than a than a super flat. Yeah, I'm I'm the same as you are. I, I try to have that hierarchical organization, but I try to flip it upside down. So we have the CEO at the bottom supporting yep. the middle, you know, the senior team who support the managers, who support the employees, support the customers, right? So I, I even publish it upside down where mm -hmm. they can visually see that we're there to support them and hold them up and help them, but they can still see where they fit and how communication flows. And um, I just think there's a natural, I haven't seen a whole lot of companies have success with the other model. I think that's a great idea, and I'm probably going to steal that idea and, uh, and and publish it here as well. I think it's really great. Go for it. Yeah, just it just always worked for me. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about you know over the years you've really learned some of the big leadership lessons. For anyone listening, what would the maybe top two or three big lessons that you've pulled over the years, and maybe even be ones that you wish you'd known earlier on? I think one of the critical ones, which you know might be something that's less talked about, is you know, one that's maybe not necessarily always a happy discussion. And I think that that's, you know, if you've got people who are who are potentially toxic in your organization is move on it quickly. Uh. Like you can't move on that quick enough. And, and I've certainly been guilty of second guessing even myself and saying, you know, maybe they don't have the right leadership or maybe they're great, but they need to be in another role. And that's what's causing this toxicity. Ultimately, if you're feeling that there's someone toxic there, do what you can to, to resolve that situation as quickly as possible because it only gets worse. Yeah. Okay. So the slow to so slow to hire, quick to fire. That's one. What else? Yeah. Um, you know, I, th I think at, like mastering communication, <laughs> like communication openly with your teams. Like for me, it's not all about work conversation all the time. It's really about actually having a care about what they're doing in their life. And for me, that kind of open communication method has created a great level of mutual respect between myself and, and, and my team. And getting to know people for for me, you know, we have hundreds of people, and I know a lot of people all the way, uh, you know, in our production room and on on the warehouse floor, and we go down there and have a chat. I think really getting involved in the operation really helps you to have people who want to come to work every day. Do you do any skip level meetings where you meet with teams without their direct supervisor present? We don't. We don't. But we should. We should. It's not right. something we've done that previously in the past. Not here at Sugarfina. You know, that was sort of something that was really encouraged at, at William Sonoma, actually. Yeah, bit, I was uh, I was coaching a CEO on it recently, and I suggested that he meet with the entire marketing team. There were 12 people in marketing, and I wanted him to meet with everyone in marketing without the VP of marketing present, and everything was going great in marketing. But I wanted the CEO to go in and talk to them just to find out what was going on, how things were working, what their thoughts were, and also to talk about the direction of the company and just get their thoughts. And the, the key for it was to not engage what right. I kept saying to him was anything they tell you, you, all you can say is, thank you, that's interesting. Thank you, that's interesting. But you can't say, oh, we have to fix that or yes, we'll be on that. You just have to go, thank you, that's interesting. Yep. And then when you're, when you're asking them information, just say, hey, just curious what your thoughts are in this. And then when they give you the thoughts, say, thank you, that's interesting. So it's a very kind of one-sided funnel 
Uh, and it's right. important because I think a lot of leaders want to solve the problem, but they don't really have the full story. You, know, you need yeah. to then go back to the VP of marketing and find out what their side is to, I guess, to truly uncover the rest of it, right? Yeah, that's really interesting. I think it's probably, you know, that kind of method is something that would probably really work well here as well. Yeah, I, there's, there's got to be somebody who's published something on like a really nice structure for that as well. Because I, I just mm -hmm. kind of off the cuff talk about my experience. I had a mentor who was being groomed as a second in command at Starbucks. And um, I remember Greg Johnson came up to meet with me. It was his quarter to come to Vancouver. We used to alternate. I'd go down to Starbucks head office or he would come up to the 1-800-GOT junk head office. And we had a, a day of meetings set up and I was all excited. I'm like, hey, we'll meet for dinner tonight. And then I'll tomorrow we'll do the whole day together. And he goes, oh yeah, change up. We're going to go for dinner tonight and we're going to go for dinner tomorrow night. But tomorrow during the, during the day, I'm meeting with each of your direct reports uh, and their teams one-on-one. -on -one. I was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. whoa, whoa. He's like, it's okay. It's all going to be good. And he came back with some pretty insightful stuff for me that I, I never would have been able to uncover for myself. Right. And he came back and, and because he wasn't inside the company, he couldn't engage. You know, he couldn't say, oh, yeah, we have to change that because he didn't know. Doesn't, know. doesn't have the background on it. Right. Right. So it was a really, it was, that was where I learned the idea of a skip level that I could execute on in a safe way for any of my direct reports yep. was because he couldn't engage. So. A lot of time, your direct reports might not be comfortable in giving you that feedback. I always ask my team to challenge me. You know, when we're talking about a strategy that I might be presenting, and I always try and go about my strategy and engaging my team first and just building it together. But there are some things that need to come from a you know a visionary perspective, and and I try and deliver on that as well. Um, but I'm always very open with my team to say, challenge me if you think that something's silly. I said, you know. I don't have all the best ideas, but I've got to come up with them and, and, you know, we've got to work together on them. And I think we're in a pretty good place now where most of my team are now comfortable to say, well, what about this? And if you thought about that, and I don't know about this, this seems a bit funny to me. Mm. And I, I love that environment. I think that helps with our culture as well, is it means that, that the people working in our, in our organization feel like they really add value and that they can contribute to something as well. If it's all just me, hey, this is what we're going to do, and I don't offer, I don't allow any feedback or any anything to be challenged. I don't think we would get the buy-in that we get now if people feel that they really contribute to something. Yeah, for sure. You, when you touched on something else about how do you get people to um, to feel comfortable with with saying what's really on their mind or contributing, have you heard of or, or used um, either of these tools? One is called Tiny Pulse, and the second is called Fifteen Five. No, neither of them. So Tiny Pulse is a, a one-question survey that goes out to all of your employees um, either once a week or once every couple of weeks, and you just kind of read the tea leaves. They just tell you stuff. Yeah. The other one is 15.5, and it's uh, a program where it takes the employee 15 minutes a week to write up their report, and it takes the leader five minutes to read it, and it gives right. you all the facts, feelings, and restrainers, and drivers about what's happening in their area kind of prior to your one-on-ones. What I like about both of them is because it's email based, because it's, it's technology based and they're so, it's very simple, very lean. It, it integrates with nothing. It's supposed to be its own little standalone. People will type stuff that they wouldn't normally say face to face. Right. I had somebody years ago and, you know, he typed something about one of his peers, another VP. And then I was sitting down in front of him. He's like, Oh my God, I can't believe I actually wrote that. I'm like, no, it's great. Like, let's talk about it. You know, but they didn't, yeah. they somehow feel comfortable in typing something up that they wouldn't necessarily. You can, and then you can help them with it. Right. You know, I think everyone's probably a little more comfortable, you know, being behind a keyboard than approaching someone face to face where you don't necessarily have to deal with their reaction if it's something that's maybe a little bit challenging in terms of what feedback you're giving. Yeah. It's pretty hard to say to your significant other face to face, but we often write after a couple of drinks, right? Like texture. Right, exactly. <laughs> I'm on my way home. <laughs> yeah. 
tell me about what are your favorite hacks or technology tools that maybe you're using internally, either for yourself or the company? Probably my favorite favorite one is a relatively inexpensive tool by Zoho called Zoho Creator. It's essentially, it's the whole process of making paperwork paperless, right? In that you build very easily. You don't have to have any sort of, I mean, it certainly helps if you if you understand technology and you can script and write a little bit of code, but you certainly do not need to. Interesting. There's a lot of drag and drop forms to create app-based uh, tools. So it can go on an iPad or, or your phone or Android tablet or even through a browser. An example of how I've used that at Sugarfina is we had you know issues when I first joined about customers receiving stuff and either the packaging wasn't, you know, was damaged or you know, it was maybe a missing an item or that was the wrong item. Uh, you know, standard sort of pick and pack quality issues when you don't have, you know, great systems in a warehouse. I built a Q a QA team and then I built an app through Zoho Creator, gave it to the QA team where they would right. either pull apart orders that um, had already been picked and inspect them or look at, you know, inline Q, QC work. Essentially, the app would guide them through a whole bunch of things to check. So they'd scan the sales order, they'd scan who picked it, they scanned who packed it, they'd scan mm. who they are as well. So we knew who was picking and packing the order. They would then go through a series of questions that would say, right, um, you know, all SKUs, you know, correct, and they'd say pass or fail. Uh, you know, one of the things that differentiates us on our e-com is that we do a handwritten note on every single order. We will always do a handwritten note no matter how many orders we do. Right. Wow. So you know, one of the things is we want to make sure that one, that it's neat and tidy and that everything has translated and is spelt correctly. Now, is this a, is this a handwritten note using a pen machine or is this a handwritten no. note using a hand? It's a handwritten note using a hand. It's awesome. You know, one of the things might be handwritten note pass or fail. If they hit fail, it then gives them another series of fixed options of the, you know, why did it fail? Right? Okay, the note was missing, the handwriting uh, was messy, uh, or maybe there's a smudge on it or something like that. Now, what this app does is then drive a real-time dashboard showing us what's going on. Like, wow. what's, what's our pass rate and our fail rate? And not only, more importantly than that, do we have certain SKUs that are failing more than others, people who are picking the same thing wrong or packing issues at all the way down to an order level or a person level? And that helps us then retrain. So by implementing this tool that captures all this information in a system that was cheap and very easy to put together, We've been able to take our pass rate from, I think it was like, it was, it was pretty bad at one point. It was like 75% of our orders were passing, right? In terms of what we determined to be suitable quality for us. And, you know, given sure. that we're very, very particular. So what might be fine by the customer may not have passed our quality standard. Yep. But we're now at like, you know, 98, 99. Sometimes we have weeks at 100%. And that's been because we get visibility to this data we couldn't previously capture. We get it in real time. And now we go and we look at the areas that we have to focus on what's failing the most and why let's go and fix it it's such um, a simple little tool at the same time yeah and you know we've used that in for multiple things um you know that same kind of app you know we built a whole bunch of them to just make our lives easier and, and they feed into reports and dashboards and give you the real-time information to capture it's great so when when sugarfina goes to the billion dollar revenue mark you can move over and be the ceo of um of zoho because you uh you sure pitched their product pretty nicely it's you're a raving right. fan right I, I probably should have bought shares before that man. <laughs> Yeah, that was well done. I'm like, holy yeah. smokes, that's a really good one. All right, yeah. um, Ben, tell us, I, I want to know, you've been doing so many great things and I don't often flip to this, but any any lesson from the edge at all? Not so much a failure, but has there been a failure or a lesson from the edge or a time where everything really got tested and what did you learn from that? 
you know, probably a few. And, you know, early in my days, you know, in the 3PL days, I think really, you know, understanding a business well uh, before implementing it were, were, were key things. You know, there, there were a few things back in those days where, you know, we were growing and, and very eager to grow. And I think it happens a lot in businesses today where, where you ride this wave of new business and, and scale and it can potentially be, you know, revenue at all costs or it can be, sure. uh, you know, compromising quality for speed to market. And I think these are some of the things that, that I've certainly learned in that you just cannot do that. Yeah. The builder bus doesn't really work. Right. doesn't matter how badly you want to get that product to the market or get it to a consumer. If the quality isn't perfect, you should not do it. And you need to just, you know, you need to solve that and you need to fess up and you need to own it and, and fix it. Are you guys doing acquisitions at all in your growth? We're not. No. It's all organic, is it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. Seriously, I was, I was on a plane last night from, uh, imagine me being on a plane, but from um, Scottsdale, Arizona up to Vancouver. And I asked the flight attendant if they had any chocolate. And I was like, no, we don't have any chocolate. I'm like, because the, the ice cream we were serving was terrible. I didn't want to try that. But. Right. And then he came back and he gave me this, this little chocolate bar. And I, and I actually knew the founder of it, but it's, do you know, Chow, C-H-U-A, C-H-U-A-O? No, I don't. You heard of them? It's no. a Mexican brand. Their chocolate's spectacular. This one had, um, this one had honeycomb in it, like chocolate and honeycomb. That sounds good. In this tiny little wrapper. Yeah, it was amazing. But I was, I was like, yeah, if you ever want to buy a company, those are the kinds of little ones to snap up. Yeah. Perfect little brands that tuck up under some other luxury brand, right? That have already yeah. got distribution. All right, yeah. Ben, um, Ian Smith, COO for Sugarfina. Thank you. I got some some great ideas, more inspiration. I'm going to jump off and look at Zoho, and then I am driving with my kids later this evening after my run to the Oak Ridge location of Sugarfina in Vancouver. So enjoy. Thanks very much for everything. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Appreciate your All time. Right. Take care. You've been listening to Second in Command with Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. To learn more best practices from industry-leading COOs, please visit COOalliance.com.